Hello, med students. My name is Zach Olson, and thank you for downloading this week's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. It's been two weeks since our last episode, so your brain should be nice and refreshed. So listen up. No fluff this week. We're about to have the talk. And I will say that I'm both honored and scared to be giving you the PE talk this week. This is one of the most clinically useful discussions we will ever have on this podcast because this topic has been and continues to be hot. This is so high yield, you don't even realize it yet. You're going to hear lots of different spins on this talk. And I have had several attendings who will disagree with what I'm about to say until the day I die. But I've read a lot about this, and quite frankly, I'm going to tell you what I absolutely believe is the right, most evidence-based approach to the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. A diagnosis which is both simultaneously one of the most missed diagnoses in emergency medicine and one of the most over-tested for diagnoses in emergency medicine, which is weird because it's all in the setting of a clear, established standard of care. So this week, we're going to have the talk. What is pulmonary embolism? A pulmonary embolism starts off as a venous clot, most commonly in the legs, that breaks off, it floats up to the right side of the heart, and gets launched into the pulmonary arteries. These can be all different sizes. They can be like teeny tiny and land in these itty bitty little pulmonary capillaries. They can be huge chunks that get stuck right after getting shot out of the right side of the heart. These are called saddle embolisms because they sit with their little blood clotty legs hanging into each pulmonary artery going into the right lung and the left lung like a saddle. When these happen, a range of symptoms and signs can happen. So symptoms. Shortness of breath is the most common. In like a healthy person, they'll get this weird shortness of breath with exertion that improves with rest. Chest pain is another symptom. If you remember our six cardiopulmonary causes of chest pain, pulmonary embolism was the queen. Lightheadedness and syncope. Remember our rule of 15s and the six deadly syncope mimics. And then what about signs? So abnormal vital signs, tachycardia, hypoxia, hypotension. You can get EKG changes. These are signs of PE. The issue is, is that like a lot of people have these symptoms and signs. It's like over half of the patients in the emergency department, which is why we need to talk about the diagnostic approach to pulmonary embolism. So step one, anybody with a symptom or sign that could be attributed to a pulmonary embolism, anybody with a physiologic manifestation of a pulmonary embolism gets entered into what we call the pathway. The pathway, or the Wells score, D-dimer, perk rule pathway, is something created by a physician named Dr. Klein, one of the world's leading experts in pulmonary embolism, a pathway which has become the national standard of care in a paper that is cited in this episode's description. Step two. So all of these patients are getting entered into the pathway, but listen here. This is a very big but. You exclude, you take back out everybody who has a legitimate, clear, 
alternative diagnosis as the cause of their symptoms. Patients with coronary artery disease, history of heart attack, with their classic angina symptoms, get taken out of the pathway. Patients with fever, productive cough, and an infiltrate on chest x-ray get taken out. Patients with COPD or asthma with their classic symptoms in a story which clearly looks like their typical asthma or COPD, they get taken out of the pathway. But I need to emphasize here too, clear alternative diagnosis. Trivia. What is the most common factor associated with missing the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism? Take a guess. It's an infiltrate on chest x-ray because PE can cause an infarct of the lung. An infarcted lung looks like a lobar pneumonia. Trivia. According to the American College of Chest Physicians, what percentage of patients admitted for COPD actually have a pulmonary embolism? One in four. Trivia. According to the New England Journal of Medicine, what percentage of patients admitted for syncope, unknown cause, had a pulmonary embolism? This is 2016. The answer was one in six. So from all patients with a sign or symptom of pulmonary embolism, shortness of breath, chest pain, EKG, hypoxia, tachycardia, you exclude all that have a clear alternative diagnosis, but none of this oh, I guess it's probably just their COPD flaring stuff. Oh, this patient doesn't really sound like pneumonia, but the chest x-ray shows an infiltrate, so I guess it's pneumonia. No. Step three. From there, all patients get stratified into one of three categories using the Wells score. The Wells score. Look it up. Low risk, medium risk, high risk. Of note, your attendings... Your attendings, experienced people, are allowed to substitute a low-risk well score for their experienced low-risk gestalt that has been studied. But whatever method is chosen, all patients with a sign or symptom of pulmonary embolism, minus those with a clear alternative diagnosis, gets put into low, medium, or high risk using the Wells score for you or a gestalt for your attendings. Step four, of all of the patients with a sign or symptom of pulmonary embolism, minus those with an alternative diagnosis who are low risk, they get something called the PERC rule. P-E-R-C, PERC, look it up. If they meet every single one of those PERC criteria, you're done because the risks of all of the testing we do for pulmonary embolism outweigh the chances that you'll actually find one. Step five. Now, if they don't perk out, as we call it, or if they are medium risk, they get a D-dimer. The D-dimer cutoffs can be adjusted for pregnancy or age, but you need a D-dimer. And the reason is you're trying to give the patient one last shot to not have to get a CTA, that big dose of radiation, the CT angiogram. So you get the D-dimer in anyone who does not perk out but they were low risk or in anyone who is medium risk. Now, at this point, if that D-dimer is elevated above your typical cutoff or the age-adjusted cutoff or the pregnancy-adjusted cutoff 
or if they are high risk in that stratification step, they get imaging. CTA if they can. If their kidneys are strong and they don't have a contrast allergy, or if you can't get a CTA, then they need to get a VQ scan. That's the diagnostic workup for pulmonary embolism, a lethal disease. Maybe this little tiny clot doesn't kill them, but the next clot, which they are now extremely high risk for having, might be the one that kills them. Now, if they have pulmonary embolism, they get started on anticoagulation, heparin, anoxaparin, which is called Lovenox, something that decreases that risk. That's the talk. Now, a few other pearls. Some doctors like doing bilateral leg ultrasounds instead of doing this algorithm, and that is a mistake. The sensitivity for pulmonary embolism of isolated lower extremity ultrasounds is 30%. It's not sensitive at all. You can't rule out pulmonary embolism with bilateral lower extremity ultrasounds in multiple studies. The other thing getting talked about are the quote, incidental or quote, subsegmental pulmonary embolisms with the thought that they are basically too small to matter, usually just an artifact on the image, and that we shouldn't treat these. As of this episode today, to my knowledge, that remains so controversial and is very much yet to be determined. That wraps up this episode. Send me an email, Zach, Z-A-C-K, at emclerkship.com. Please tell people about the podcast, and until next time, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.